It is very good to be back with you again. I have missed being with you in the assembly. Good to have the opportunity to stand before you again and try to open the Word of God. Forty years ago, this past January, I was ordained to the gospel ministry, and about 30 of those years I have spent in this county. And I'm mindful of something I heard my dad say. Um, along the way as he grew older. My mind now goes to those texts and topics I have not preached on more than those I, I have. As you begin to realize the sand in the glass is getting lower and lower. Since it has been a little while since I have preached, I'm a bit rusty, I'm sure, and a little bit pent up, so forgive me in my rustiness and if I gush a little bit or I'm glad that you brought your lunches too. <laughs> As I begin this morning, there's two matters I want to mention. Um, and some of you here have heard me say this through the years. Uh, through, the, through my ministry, there were, there were times that I would preach what I would call uh, a nuts and bolts sermon, what I would call a maintenance sermon. And they're not usually what I think of as being real flashy sermons. Um, and I would place the sermon today in that category as a, as a maintenance sermon. And in my mind, they are important because it's like you maintenance a car. You, need to, you, have, you have need for maintenance sermons along the way. And the second thing I would say is that my introduction this morning I might seem at first a bit disconnected from my text, which is coming from 1 Corinthians 14. And if you would, open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 14. And my intro might seem a bit disconnected from that passage when we, when we first start, but I think it's important for us to always keep in our minds the continuity of Scripture, harmony of Scripture, and um, something that is referred to uh, uh, as the analogy of faith. And the analogy of faith is a hermeneutical principle, a, a principle of interpreting Scripture that's based upon the reality that all of Scripture is united and that um, you have one basic story and theme that runs throughout the scripture. And that um, you should find that there is an agreement, a general agreement between scriptures, whether it be in the Old or the New Testament, you will find this, this harmony. So uh, every interpretation of any passage of scripture should be compared to and compatible with a interpretation of another passage of Scripture, be it from another book, another testament, or whatever it may be. And I think it's important that we try to display this in our preaching, if not all the time, at least some of the time, but probably preferably all of the time. 
So uh, that's part of what goes into my introduction today. But for right now, I want you to look in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 20. And I'll read verses 20 through 25, even though when we come back to this chapter, we're going to be sort of taking a survey of this chapter in a, in a few moments. May we hear God's word, 1 Corinthians 14, 20. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. In the law it is written by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people. And even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. While prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. Thus we read the word of God and God's people said. Amen. Let's pray together. Holy Father, we are grateful for your word, this portion of it. And do pray now your blessings upon that which is read to our hearing, to our understanding, into our uh, belief and to uh, the application of it in the life of the church here at Emmanuel. I pray in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. In Genesis 28, and Pastor John has just recently finished a series in that book, um, that I know that we have been blessed by. In Genesis 28, Isaac tells Jacob to return home and to take as a wife one of the daughters of Laban because he's not to marry um, one of the women from a foreign land. So Jacob leaves Beersheba on the 500-mile trek back to Padan Aram. Some 50 miles from home, or 50 miles into his journey, and I don't know whether that had taken him a day or two days or a week, I have no idea, but he's 50 miles away from Beersheba into his journey to Padan Aram. The Scripture tells us that night overtook him, and he is weary, no doubt, from his travels, and he makes camp and he lies down for the night to sleep. And I think that he's weary because he uses a stone for his pillow. And I think probably you got to be pretty tired to want to have a stone for your pillow rather than some blanket or something that you're carrying with you on your journey. And Jacob goes to sleep and as he slept, he dreamed. Now, it's not hard to imagine that scene, is it? 
Here we have Jacob. He's tired. He's gone to sleep. And around the resting sleeper, we can imagine the night is growing quiet and calm and settled. And the glowing embers of his campfire, no, not, no doubt, offer a, a very irenic tone to the scene. However, if we were to look closer at the sleeper, we would notice that even though around him is quiet and serene, we would notice that his eyes, his eyelids, are fluttering very rapidly in what we would call rapid eye movement, REM, because he is in that stage of sleep where one dreams. And he's dreaming vividly. He's dreaming of a ladder that reaches from earth all the way to heaven. And on this ladder, angels are ascending and descending back and forth. And above the ladder in heaven stands Yahweh. And Yahweh is repeating to Jacob the Abrahamic covenant with all of his promises. Now, if you've ever seen the picture of the of the ocean and all of a sudden a submarine breaches the surface of the of the surface of the ocean coming up in, in an emergency breach you know how they just shoot out of the water that's just kind of how I imagine this scene in my mind because here is this very ironic scene before us of the sleeper the dreamer and all of a sudden like from the depths of the ocean the submarine pops up here is Jacob from sleep popping up, coming up from the, from the depths of, of sleep to, to consciousness. And the serenity of the night is disrupted immediately. As the dreamer declares very emphatically, at least according to the way we have the diacritical markings in our scripture with the exclamation points, he, he very emphatically declares in Genesis 28, surely the Lord is in this place. And I did not know it. And then the Scripture declares that Jacob was afraid. And he said what we just sang. How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. And this is the gate of heaven. Now that title, House of God, or House of the Lord, that's the first use of it in the Bible. Now that becomes a very common appellation then as you move, a common title as you move through the Scriptures. A thousand years later, there will be another who is at night, and God will come to that one. And it's after the dedication of the temple that was dedicated that day. And then that night, God will come to Solomon. And he will appear to Solomon and say to Solomon that night in 2 Chronicles 7, he will say to him, now my eyes, the Lord is speaking to Solomon, now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayer that is made in this place. For now I have chosen and consecrated this house 
that my name may be there forever. Now, of course, we heard this this morning in the Bible study. If you're a literalist, you have a little problem here because that house didn't stand forever. It's gone. And it was rebuilt and then destroyed and rebuilt and destroyed and it's gone now. That my my name may be there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there for all time. But that's God's word to Solomon. And then as you move, read the Psalms, actually many of the Psalms would would predate that particular statement to Solomon. But as you read the Psalm, you'll find that that title, the house of God, is a very common in the house of the, uh, excuse me, in the Psalms. David would use it, other psalmists would use it. Psalm 27, 4, One thing have I asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. Psalm 84, 4, Blessed are those who dwell in your house. Verse 10, I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. Psalm 122, 1, and Dozens and dozens and dozens of other songs, but 122.1, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. And then about a thousand years after that, David's greater son, Christ, refers to the temple of his day as the house of God when he said to his parents that were seeking him after they had temporarily lost where he was when he's 12 years old, and his answer to them when they were looking for him is, did you not know that I must be about my father's business, that I must be in my father's house? And then as he begins his ministry, about age 30 or so, in John 2, Christ will say to those who sold the pigeons as he goes into the temple, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. And then toward the end of his ministry, he will go in with a scourge and he will drive them out. And he will say that you've made the house of prayer, my father's house, into a den of thieves. Now, Paul then will employ that term to refer to the church, both universal and local. In Ephesians 2 19 through 22, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Straight line, right back, Jacob, all the way through Scripture. That's what I'm talking about, the analogy of faith. Here it is. I've just traced it for you right through Scripture. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for 
the Lord. And then, of course, we've studied this not too terribly long ago. First Timothy chapter three, verses 14 and 15. This that we ought to know how to behave ourselves in the household of God. Which is the church of the living God, a pillow and buttress of truth. And then this, of course, reaches its ultimate realization in and through Jesus Christ. You want to know about that ladder? Read John 151. Christ will say to Nathaniel, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. You want to know that ladder that reaches from earth to heaven? It's Christ. And the house of God then will reach its ultimate, final completion in glory because Christ then will say to his disciples when he's preparing to go away in John 14 too, let not your heart be troubled. In my Father's house, I go to prepare a place for you. In my Father's house are many rooms or many mansions and I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go, I will come again and receive you unto myself. My Father's house. Then you see the ultimate fulfillment of the covenant, new covenant spoken of in Jeremiah 31 and of the Father's house in Revelation 21.3. Behold, the dwelling place of God, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will dwell with him. And that's the ultimate final realization of the dwelling place of God. Which brings me to this point. There are some basic realities about the nature of the church that I want to mention now. The church, and I'm basing this on some things I just said to you, but some other realities. The church, local, and universal for that matter, is not isolated to a particular location. In John 4, in Christ's conversation with the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, and they enter a conversation about worship. And where shall we worship? And she said, our father said we should worship in the mountain. And you Jews say we should, you should worship in Jerusalem, the temple. And Jesus' response to her is it's beneath the place. He knows the temple's not going to be there very long. And what you're talking about over here, in the mountain, your temple, that's not going to last either. And that's not the issue. It's not where, but it's how and who. Amen. For God seeks the true worshiper that must worship him in spirit and in truth. And so we, we say that the church is not brick and mortar. That's not that a, a building a church does not necessarily make. 
However, a church is a gathered people. Turn your Bibles to 1 Peter for just a moment. Chapter 1. I told you, it's not going to seem like, how is he getting this from 1 Corinthians? Well, we're working our way there. Uh, turn to 1 Peter for a moment. The church is a gathered people, but it's not just any gathered people. It's not the Boy Scouts or the Kiwanis or whatever. It's a, it's a peculiar gathered people. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18-23, through 23, we find some peculiarities about this gathered people. One, we find that they are a blood-bought people. Let's start at 17. He says, And if you call on Him as Father who judges impartially, According to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. And they are a born-again people. I'm just going to keep on reading. Uh, verse 20, He was foreknown before the foundation of the world. That would be Christ in the context. You can read around. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last time for the sake of you, who through Him are believers in God, who raised Him from the dead and gave Him glory so that your faith and hope are in God, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, Love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding Word of God. And so we'd say that the church is a, is, is a gathered people of God. That's not just any gathered, but they're the blood-bought people purchased by the blood of Christ. They're born-again people. Thus, when we discuss whether that's a, a baptism of believers or uh, uh, Pato Baptist, that of a child, we go, well, no, it's baptized believers because they have to express they're born again. They have faith in Christ. This is the church. This is the gathered body of believers. And they're being built up as a spiritual house. Now look at chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. This is the reason I said this is the describing the church. As you come to Him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. This is the church. To be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And so they're blood-bought, they're born again, they're chosen, they're being built up as a spiritual house, as the dwelling place of God to offer spiritual sacrifices to the Lord. And some 2,000 years after Jacob had that dream of the ladder, and he named that place, what did he name it? Bethel, which means what? house of God and that we are in the house of God in Bethel because this is where God is 
Some 2,000 years after Jacob named that place Bethel, Abraham's promised heir, the Lord Jesus Christ, speaking in the context of the local church, promised for where two or three are gathered together in my name, these two or three that are blood-bought, born-again, chosen as lively stones being built together for the worship of the Lord, He promised, there am I in the midst of them. Now the main points I want you to notice in this is that Jacob realized that the place he rested was none other than the house of God, the very gate of heaven, and it was an awesome place. It was God's dwelling. It's where God promised, and it's, uh, his, his, his promised presence was there. It's where his people gathered, and he promised his presence there. And we saw it as I went through the Old Testament with you right into the New Testament. He called it the gate of heaven. It's where God condescends to be with his people, and his people in worship ascend into the very presence of God in heaven. It's the gate of heaven. And Jacob declared, surely the Lord is in this place. Now these two truths are wonderfully brought together for you. And one other passage I want to mention, that's Hebrews 12, verses 22, 23, and 24. And I've referenced this passage, and you've had it referenced many, many times in your presence. But Hebrews 12, if you look there in your Bibles, Hebrews 12, 22 we read these words. But you have not come, but excuse me, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant. He just said you haven't come, before that he says you haven't come to the mountain that cannot be touched. You haven't come to Mount Sinai. But you've come to something much, much better. There is no barrier now between believers and the very presence of God. There was a barrier in the Old Covenant. There is no barrier now. And when the church gathers, they gather with the angels and saints who have gone before and although we may be gathered in this physically in this building, the writer of Hebrews says when the church gathers, they actually are entering into the very heavenlies. And that's true every time the church truly gathers. And that's what Jacob realized. And he said, how awesome is this place? So, when we gather to worship, Above all, we want to know, we want to remember the peculiar nature of the assembly. We want to know, we really want to know the Lord's presence with us. And we want anyone who might be gathering with us to also know the Lord's presence with us. That brings us full circle to 1 Corinthians 14. So, That in 1 Corinthians 14. 
Let's do. Let's just start with the background and context. Because the reason I say that is because verse twenty-five of what I read in fourteen twenty-five, that even if an unbeliever should be in your midst, falling on their face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. Wow. So that's the reason I said we've come full circle back to this now. Okay. So let's do the background and context. Chapters 12, 13, and 14, they compose a unit about spiritual gifts. If you look at 12, 1, you'll note that it begins with the two words now concerning. And this is an often repeated phrase that you will find in 1 Corinthians. And it's used to denote a shift. And sometimes the shift is, or at least on one occasion, the shift is a change in the very epistle itself. And that is in the first six chapters, Paul is dealing with issues that were brought to him by the house of Chloe or the people from Chloe's house. And so in the first six chapters, Paul is responding, but it was seen, that to issues that were brought to him, um, particularly division in the church that had been brought to his attention by the people from Chloe's household. And most of this division was really due to immaturity. But then you'll notice in chapter 7, verse 1, the phrase, now concerning. And you'll notice that phrase is repeated in 7.25, 8.1, 12.1. 16.1 and 16.12. Now, Paul is responding to questions that had been sent to him in a letter from the church about certain issues. And when you see the now concerning, he is responding to these questions. And it's kind of like listening to somebody talking on the phone to somebody else. You don't hear their questions you don't hear what they're saying. You just hear what the person that you hear talking on the phone is saying. You can sort of piece together the conversation. We don't have the letter they sent him, but we have Paul's letter back to them. And so we can get a pretty good picture into the life of this church from Paul's response. And we got a pretty good idea of what they were asking by his response. But we're just hearing one side of the conversation because we don't have their letter, but we have Paul's. Then we ask the question, why does Paul write chapters 12, 13, and 14? It's kind of like, again, in the study this morning, Revelation. Sometimes you think people, the way they treat Revelation, you think it's like it's a crystal ball. That's the reason people want to study Revelation. Now, I, you know, I can see into the future. Why, why did Paul write 12, 13, and 14 in 1 Corinthians? Sometimes you think that he wrote it to, so we can argue about spiritual gifts because that has been a big topic of argument through the years uh, in the church. I don't think that that's the reason he wrote it. I don't think he wrote it because he gives us a list that we can have a, a provide us a list of spiritual gifts. I don't think he wrote it so we could argue about continuation or cessation of spiritual gifts. I don't think that's the purpose. 
thing. That's the reason he wrote it. Um, now, taking the totality of the, the, of the 12, 13, and 14, uh, yes, I think he is correcting abuses. I, I do believe that. I think it's very instructive. I do think he's demonstrating what is most useful, and he's pointing out the purpose of the gifts. But I think the emphasis here is on the health and the well-being of the body. You look at it in its, in its, in its totality. Um, because you've got... Uh, Look at, if you just, I don't have the time to get into all this, but if you just look at 12, he gets into the body, uh, really the meat of it, beginning in verse 12, talks about there's one body with many members, and he uses the, the, the analogy of the body. And you have many members, but then all these members serve one body. And then you get to chapter 13, what's it about? Love. Love. And he says the greatest is love. Love. This is what... What's most important in the body is, is love. And then he starts off chapter 14, pursue love. Pursue love. Why? Because that's what's most important for the body. And then he begins to really take on two, two items. Tongues and prophecy. He says, but he doesn't say, basically he, he proves what's most important here is prophecy. And Why? Because it's for the good of the body. And so the whole section is about what's best for the body, the church. The church. That's what he's focusing on. What's best for the church. Okay. Now, what is the nature? Let's just do very, just very briefly mention, what is the nature of the prophecy that he's speaking about and the nature of the tongues that he's speaking about here? Is the tongues a language or not? And that's been debated and argued about, I suppose. I reckon since this ink was wet, when the parchments were first rolled up, I, you know, there's been arguments about it. Um, verse 2, he says that the one that speaks in tongues speaks uh, not to God. Um, um, he speaks to God, excuse me, not to man. Verse 2, he also says that no one understands him. In verse 4, he says that he builds up himself. He doesn't build up anyone else. In verses 16 through 19, he says if something's not, of, uh, it's not understood, it's of no value. But it really doesn't answer the question, what's he talking about? Is it, is it, is it a language or not? I lean to the position, yeah, it is, because that seems to be what is addressed in Acts 2. It seems to be what's addressed other places where he's talking about tongues. It's a language. Um, prophesying, a prophet was one who spoke for God, whether it was telling something in the future or simply declaring the word of God at the moment. It's not always telling the future. It's simply speaking forth the word of God. It's, it's divine instruction. It's truth. It's simply speaking the truth of God to people. Not that preaching is prophesying, but sometimes prophesying is preaching. And so prophesying was simply speaking the word of God. Now it could have a miraculous aspect to it or not. But now again, I just went through the, the, the points of the tongues 
where he says that the person in verse 2 of chapter 14, the one that speaks in tongues, is not speaking to other people. He's speaking to God. Nobody understands them unless you can interpret it, unless you understood the language, like at Pentecost. Uh, they're not building up anybody. It's not edifying. And verses 16, 6 through 19, it's, 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 if it's not understood, it's not a value. I, when I think of that, I think of the Reformation. I think of the Reformation this way. Think of coming in here today and me standing here and before, before I even stood. Think of the Reformation and think of behind me, behind the pulpit up here, there was a choir. And every song we sang was in Latin. Every song. And then the scripture reading was in Latin. And when I stood to give the discourse, it's in Latin. And you all would say, Amen! Amen! Then you'd be looking like, What? What do you say? What do you say? That's what I think of. And then in the, the rest, in the, another part of this, he talked about instruments. Every instrument has a certain sound. And he talks about battle. And in battle, they had flags or they used bugles or trumpets. And this trumpet sound, this bugle sound meant charge or this bugle sound meant retreat. Or this one meant whatever. And if it gives an uncertain sound, who knows what to do? We've had this to happen, not, not their fault, it's our fault usually because we print the wrong number somewhere. But we stand up to sing Amazing Grace and the music's playing Old Rugged Cross. And we go about two verse, two words, I mean, we go, wait a minute, something's not right here. And it's like a cacophony. It's all mixed up and it's like, we got to stop and start over. Well, that's what he says. If that's what's going on, it's confusion. But then, on the other hand, he says prophesying is different than that. And when I think of that, I think of Moses, where they came running to Moses outside the camp, and 70 were prophesying, and the word came to Moses, that everybody's prophesying, we've got to stop them. And Moses said, I was at all God's people with prophets. Isn't it? Yes, that's great. They're telling the word of God. That's in Numbers chapter 11. And he says in verse 3 of 14 that prophecy was addressed to the people. That in verse 3, that prophecy was edifying to the church. And he uses these words, it's upbuilding, it's encouraging, and it's for consolation. And in verse 4, he said that prophecy again builds up the church. And in verse 24, we find that prophecy convicts an unbeliever that might happen to come in. And the conclusion is in verse 5, 12, and 19 that prophecy is better. And then we have this difficult section in verses 20 through 25 that I read. And Paul quotes Isaiah 28, 11 through 12. In verse 22, he concludes that tongues are a sign for unbelievers. In verse 22, he also says that prophecy is a sign for believers. But then in verse 23 through 24, in the application, the reverse 
happens. And the conclusion seems to be totally different because he says in verse 23, if an unbeliever comes in and all are speaking in tongues, he'll say, you're out of your mind. But he just said they were a sign for an unbeliever. That's what it sounded like. And yet he said, if, if that's what everybody's doing and one comes in, then he's going to say, you're crazy. And in verse 24, if an unbeliever comes in and all are prophesying, the whole congregation is prophesying, then he's convicted. And he will worship and he will acknowledge that God is among you. And so it seems like we have a Gordian knot here. How do you... It seems like Paul says one thing, then he flips it. You see that? You see what I'm talking about? Well... The people Paul are describing are outsiders or unbelievers. And Garland describes them, defines them as unbelievers who are ignorant of Christianity. Now, we don't do this here, but i talking about the Ukraine. I have been in the Ukraine several times in, East, in the Eastern Bloc. And worship services there are different. Most of the time it's just believers who gather and then they have special services where they invite in unbelievers. They're evangelistic services. But as a rule, you don't find unbelievers to come to regular worship services unless they just happenstance. But Garland writes that this could include a non-Christian spouse because you had that mix going on. It could include an unconverted slave that was brought and maybe standing at the door. It could invite it could include an invited guest, but I would say that would have been unusual. Or a curious person who just happened to wander in, and I would say that would be highly unlikely because a lot of this is uh, houses and churches. Excuse me, churches and houses. I get it right. Churches and houses, homes. So that probably probably wouldn't happen. But the point is that these unbelievers who are totally ignorant of Christianity, they're, as, as God writes, these spiritual outbursts, they're not impressed. But they'll include that these Christians are start raving mad. End quote. So how do we untangle this that we got here in these two verses? Well, some say that Paul is quoting the Corinthians who are arguing that tongues are a sign that God is among them, that they have an apologetic value. But Paul's response is, no, they don't. There is no apologetic value at all in signs. None. Think back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18 where Paul asserts for the word of God of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. And so Paul responds, no. It did not please God by the folly of speaking in tongues to save those who hear them but it pleased God by the word declared. And that's his response to this. 
and I had more here, but I'll not go into all this, but the Lord said that if they don't believe the law and the prophets, they will not believe it if one got up from the dead. And so signs don't convince the unbeliever, but the Word of God. And that's what Paul says here. Well, I don't want to get lost in the weeds. Here's the point. The result of all the body speaking the Word of God was that even an ignorant outsider knew that God was present. And isn't that what we want? That we know it, and that even an ignorant outsider who doesn't know Christ will know it. So now I come to the text applied and some major concerns of this section. The ultimate goal, the ultimate goal in the body, the ultimate goal in worship, I should say. What is our ultimate goal here? Glorify God. Glorify God, and we usually say, Sola Dea Gloria. And that's true. And that's paramount. And I would also add that in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, Paul is stressing there is another goal. And that's other worshipers. That we have in our mind other worshipers. It's not to take away from glorifying God. But I have in my mind when I worship other people, other worshipers, and possibly even unbelievers as I worship. And there's a lot of things I could mention to you this morning, but there's two that I want to mention to you very quickly. One is the amen that he mentions here. In, verses, uh, in verse 16, and the other is singing. In verse 16 of chapter 14, he mentions the corporate amen. He mentions again the outsider. He says, otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen, or in the articles there, the amen, to your thanksgiving, when he does not know what you are saying. Now, Paul is addressing what we would call the corporate amen. And that's the reason I said this is a maintenance sermon. All I've been doing and coming to this is a maintenance sermon. If someone who doesn't is not familiar even someone who doesn't worship with us on a regular basis comes into Emmanuel and is not familiar with the way we worship, they might not join in the corporate amen, but we should. Now, some preachers solicit amen while they're preaching, and in my opinion, that's, that's not a good idea. It can appear self-serving, albeit I understand at times the need to want that because when you're talking about some of the great things of God and, the, and it's like stone dead it's like 
what is going on? And you know, you know, you want you want a response like, "Are you, is there life?" But I think in the, overall that's wrong because it seems to be self-serving. However, there is a congregational amen. That's verse sixteen. It is appropriate. It is meaningful. It is edifying and it is evangelistic. I'll not go through all that I had here to, to walk you through the Old Testament and New Testament of the corporate amen. But Deuteronomy, Nehemiah, Psalm, Revelation 5, 7, 19. But in the apostolic churches, it was common for the congregation to say amen at the close of prayers and of scripture reading. It's edifying, it's instructive, it's impressive when an entire congregation responds to the reading of God's word and to the prayers with a full-throated, everybody, amen. It reveals that the worshipers are engaged, they're lively, they're bold, they're not timid, and they're not retreating. And what I think about is Joshua going around the city of Jericho. Now, that's an Old Testament illusion, but that's what I think about. It's like marching around the walls. And on the seventh day, when the sound of the trumpet, what did they do? They let out with a loud cry. I don't know if that's for the... I won't go there. They let out with a... They all shouted with a loud shout together. And the walls of Jericho fell down. This building, when we read the Word of God, and at the end of our prayers, should resound with a corporate amen. And this is something we've talked about through the years. First, because that God's Word has been revealed to you, and you know Christ is real and His Word is truth, and you have the hope of glory in your heart. And you should respond to that knowledge that God has revealed Himself to you and His Word is real to you. And you respond to the truth of God's Word in that fashion. That's, that's first. Second, because we have access in prayer, we have access to the throne of God. There is no, nothing between us you and us as believers, between us and the very throne of God. And when we pray, we pray together, not just as individuals, but we pray together, bringing our petitions before the Lord, and we can come to His throne. And we know that we are heard, and we are united. So when one prays, leads the congregation in prayer, it's not just their petition, it's our petition. Thus the Lord teaches us to pray in the model prayer, our, our Father, our Father. And you read the prayers in the New Testament, they're plural. It's corporate, it's community, it's our. And when they pray, they're praying for us. And I think of the gates of hell. And I think again about Jericho. And we're, we're bringing our voice to that. Yes, I'm agreeing with that. Yes. May it so be. Yes. And we are united in that. 
And then secondly, congregational singing. I know that, and we used to do this, and maybe we need to do this again because we are changing and shifting as we should as a, as a church family. We used to get together and, and practice and try to learn and help our singing along uh, on different hymns. But singing is to be edifying, encouraging, and consoling, and it can be used by God to help an unbeliever know that God is really among us. Let me go back. I don't want to go just, let me back up just one minute. But can you imagine the impact on children growing up in a congregation, on an unbeliever coming through the door and sitting among us at the end of, the, at the, at the end of prayer or the end of the Word of God being read, sitting here and all of a sudden around that person, the entire congregation sitting together, Amen! Can you imagine the impact of that? On, 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 a, on a mind that's, that's being formed? Think about it. Think about it. And then we go to singing. Singing was an important part of the Reformation. It was taken away from special interest and given back to the congregation. No more Latin. It was put into the language of the people. And one of the, one of the marks today of many Reformed churches is this enthusiastic, full-bore Worship of God. If you're sitting by me, it's God. We lift up the Lord. And I know some of you have beautiful voices. Well, Wesley was not reformed, but he proffered some valuable points concerning singing. Sing all. See that you join the congregation. doesn't mean every verse, but everybody's singing. See that you join the congregation as frequently as you can. Let not a slight degree of weakness or weariness hinder you. If it is a cross to you, take it up. You will find a blessing. How many times have you found that to be true? Sometimes I don't feel like it. But when I engage in the worship of God, what happens? It's like that. Well, no, I won't go there either. Take it up. It'll, make you, it'll get you engaged in it. Sing lustily. Might want another word, but try that one. Sing with good courage. Beware of singing as if you were half dead or half asleep. Lift up your voice with strength. Be no more afraid of your voice now, nor more ashamed of it being heard than when you sang the songs of Satan. Or when you go somewhere and cheer out loud or whatever. Sing modestly. Do not bawl. And that's a good one, but sing. Sing in time. Sing spiritually. Have an eye to God in every word you sing. Aim at pleasing Him more than yourself or any other creature. In order to attend strictly to the sense of what you sing and see that your heart is not carried away with the sound but offered to God continually, so shall your singing be such as the Lord will approve here and reward when He cometh in the clouds of heaven. So those are two things that I would mention that we can do, I can do, you can do, that can make our worship more meaningful, not just to myself, but to other worshipers around me. Now, brothers and sisters, I'm not interested in manufacturing an emotional experience in place of genuine worship, but I am interested in us being aware of who we are, whose presence we are in, and how 
I worship impacts other worshipers. And that even as Jacob realized that we all may realize and maybe even an unbeliever that comes in among us to worship may realize how awesome is this place. Surely the Lord is in this place. This is none other than the house of God. And this is the gate of heaven. And in realizing that, so may we worship. Let's pray together. Holy Father, we thank you for your word, for the lessons of it, even these plain lessons that are simple and straightforward like this one. And I pray, Lord, that you would apply them to our hearts and our minds, that we would be true and better worshipers of the living God. Lord, speak to our minds. Let us know your presence, your glory, your greatness. I ask in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen. 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 Hymn number 303, please, as we stand together to sing.